for those of you who are tired of being cold, they're saying next week's supposed to be in the 60s, so Oklahoma weather. Thank the Lord for it. Amen. Well, uh, you know, we we mainly preach to a stagnant crowd, that group that was always here, and tonight, today we have a few newer people, but um, I, I don't, I get it from my dad and I can't help it, but um, I have to challenge the things that the Lord puts to teach us. I feel like that we're, we're here for the purpose of, of growing in the Lord. Amen? The reason why you would happen to want to stay around to the, uh, to the difficulty of, of what we preach here is because you want to grow, not because you want to hear fluff. If you want to hear fluff, there's a lot of churches around here that'll tell you what they, they want to preach and maybe what you want to hear. If you don't like that one, go to a different one. And so for the last, I don't know, We've been on a journey for a long time just to try to un- uncover and discover what the Lord is saying. And i got to challenge a few things that, um, that I've thought. Um, the Lord's really been challenging me in some areas that I don't know that I was really ready to be challenged in. But how many are thankful that he does that? Good. And you'll, you'll be happy today then. <laughs> you can open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians in the 14th chapter. And I'm not going to read a text for a few minutes, but we're just going to kind of look at this chapter. Now, anybody who's done any, um, any kind of lengthy Bible study, if, you've, if you intend to study the Scripture, uh, you're going to know that there's some chapters in the, in the book of Corinthians that are defined by specific things. The 13th chapter is known as the love chapter. Everybody kind of associates that. And, and then the 12th and the 14th chapters are both kind of the gifts chapters and talk about that. And so I've been thinking about this, and I preached a couple of weeks ago on Romans 8. And uh, it says that I heard it quoted even, I think it was this morning or last night when I was coming to the church. And it says, uh, you know, that we know not how we should pray, and the Spirit makes intercession for us. And talked about that, that that isn't about us speaking in tongues. That's about the Spirit of God working within us, pressuring, driving us to the areas that He wants us to be driven to. How many are thankful the Spirit of the Lord moves you into areas you need to be moved in? Shine some light on some things. But I was thinking about this for the last few weeks. I've been on this just thought in my own mind a lot. And I've been thinking how that I feel like having grown up in a Pentecostal environment, I feel like that we have two errors that conflict and really neither one is right. And one is this, you've got two kind of perspectives, two trains of thought when it comes to the Spirit of God moving in the church today. One is Pentecostalism and the other being fundamentalism. And those two camps pretty much house everybody. There's not a lot of anywhere else to be. Within the Pentecostalism, then there's all these different groups. And within the fundamentalism, there's all these other groups too. But I feel like that there's, there's kind of an issue. Pentecostalism has accelerated the gifts, and for those of you who grew up Pentecostal, I'm going to need a few amens here, accelerated the gifts and ignored solid spiritual growth. That was my experience growing up. Some of you can say amen to that. Refused sound biblical teaching concerning the use of the gifts in the church. 1 Corinthians 14 we're going to look at today is one of these areas. Just frankly, completely ignored by Pentecostal belief system. Um, Pentecostalism has also placed an inappropriate emphasis on manifestations. How many would say that's true, having grown up in those circles? 
And then lastly, he has overlooked the function of the Spirit to make us followers of Christ. Then on the other side of this, this other camp, you have fundamentalism. It has taken the power and the workings of the Spirit of God away from our present time. Believe in cessationism, that the Spirit of God really has ceased to work in the ways he did in the New Testament church, which I still believe we're a New Testament church, aren't we? And so what God was doing throughout the beginning of the New Testament, there's nothing to suppose that that has stopped. Two, uh, fundamentalism has, has a lack of spiritual empowering because they do not believe in the, in the current and working often of the... And I'm, I'm generalizing, doesn't mean everybody within this crowd does, but this kind of general perspective. Uh, a lack of spiritual empowering has produced excuses for sinful behavior, doctrines such as eternal security because it secures us because we have no ability to live for Jesus, because we have no Spirit of God within us, because we don't even believe in that anymore, and which has led to churches that are full of losers and excuses rather than victors and overcomers. And that's kind of the two camps we fall into. And what I fear is that, and it's not, I'm literally not trying to play the middle here. I don't think the middle is the answer. Oftentimes we get, well, this side's extreme and this side is extreme, so somewhere in the middle is where we're supposed to be. Well, sometimes we should be on one extreme or the other. But other times it should be in the middle. In this case, I'm not really trying to pick the middle here for, for middle ground's sake. But what I fear is that within, within the church, we have lost the, the understanding of what the Spirit of God is for, what His Spirit is present for. The Spirit of God is there to empower us to become like Him. Everybody say amen. So this is complete form and function. 100% contained within this, that His Spirit resides within us to empower us to be like Him. That's it. How does that look? Well, we could argue over all of that stuff, and, and I don't really intend to do that today. Um, but these, these polarizing positions, on the one hand, um, it, the, the, the emphasis is on the gifts and the manifestations. On the other hand, the gift... The emphasis is on the, the grace and salvation. But in either case, when we get focused on any of these things, if we focus on the gifts and we focus on the manifestations, or if we focus on the grace and the salvation, the end game of neither of these is Christ. Christ is the starting point for both, but the end result of neither. And that's a problem. Because if we believe the statement I just said, which is that the Spirit of God is moving within His church and within our lives to empower us to become like Him, then He is the final result of it. Amen? That us being shaped into His image is, is the purpose. And so I want to cover a little bit of this today. And maybe it's teaching, maybe it's dry, but you can go home and watch TV afterwards, take a nap. Think about it. So I want to make something clear. That this has served as a root of division in the church. You literally cannot see Pentecostals and Baptist fellowship. Why? Why doesn't that happen? Primarily because there is a, a difference of belief in the function of the Spirit of God within the church. And this has caused both groups to look at the other group and feel like either they're not saved at all, they're not born again, or they're missing the mark so badly that we cannot fellowship and we do not want to be contaminated with other denominations. Now, we're free from denomination here, so we're not worried about that today. But um, I, I want to say this too before I, I dig into this a little bit. 
I do not present what I am saying as the final word. I, I have to give that disclaimer. I'm not standing up here supposing that I have all understanding on these issues. But the Lord has, has been, been enlightening me, and I'm trying to grow in this, and I want to share that with you. I don't have all understanding. I, I don't want to, to suppose that because you might feel differently than me, um, that, that you're wrong necessarily, but I want to give you a fresh perspective. And if we're open to hear a different perspective from the Word of God, how many would say amen? I just want to receive a different perspective, and you can do with it what you will. So the first thing that we need to understand is the basic understanding of what happened in Jerusalem on Pentecost, 50 days after the Lord resurrected. The Feast of Pentecost was transpiring. Jesus returns to the upper room to his disciples as he promised he would by his spirit. Everybody say amen. You can follow along there in Acts 2 if you want to know what's happening there. He had been with them in person. He had walked with them, talked with them, eaten with them, traveled with them. They knew him only in the flesh. And he said, you will no longer know me in the flesh, but now you will know me in spirit. He said, the spirit of truth is going to come and you're going to know him because he has been, everybody remember what he says, with you, but shall be in you. So we're not talking about a different spirit. We're talking about the spirit of Christ that, that was walking in the, in the body of Christ, that was walking with them. Now he was going to be in them. This is what is transpiring at the Feast of Pentecost. And as he has promised, he empowered them to testify of who he was. This was the promise. Go and tarry in Jerusalem in Acts 1 until you be endued with power from on high, after which you shall become witnesses of me. I'm going to say a few things that people who have been around here for a long time have heard me say and dad say many times, but I want to be clear about something. It does not say, go and tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with tongues. Never discussed. The emphasis was that they would be empowered or enabled to testify boldly of who Jesus was. They needed a bold testimony because this man had, to everybody else, was just a man who had died on a cross. There's all this, this ruckus about him not being in the tomb, but none of this adds up to faith in Christ for anybody except for his immediate group. And now they're going to have to proclaim in such a way that it becomes palatable and understandable to everybody that is within earshot of who Jesus is. And this is what the Spirit of God is there to do, to empower them to this cause. Amen. It does not prophesy. Jesus does not mention gifts. Jesus does not mention tongues. He does not mention prophecy. And even when we speak of prophecy, which this chapter will, it is not talking about foretelling as though I'm um, some you know, fortune teller that you come to me and I tell you what's coming in your future. But foretelling or the proclamation of what has been hidden of who he is. This is really what New Testament prophecy is about. It is, it is the Spirit of Christ enabling people to, to uh, boldly proclaim the truths that are lost of who he is, the revelation of Christ. This is the Spirit of Christ, the revelation of Christ. So now I want to focus today on tongues. Now everybody say amen. <laughs> now this is, this is good. 
want to be clear about some things, and maybe we'll have a little different understanding. As you know, we, we do not emphasize this, but I just want to look. 1 Corinthians 14 absolutely gives us a prescription for what is tolerated, allowed, and accepted within the church. We have to live within that prescription. Everybody say amen. We're going to find a lot of people on both sides of the aisle upset with 1 Corinthians 14. Because it just doesn't line up. So let's look factually then at what we know about tongues. Remember Acts chapter 2 verse 1. And they were all assembled in the upper room. And uh, the, the Spirit of God came in as a mighty rushing wind. And then they, they, it fell on them and it, and it appeared unto them as cloven tongues like as of fire. Everybody remember that scripture? Okay, cloven means, we don't, anybody use cloven? We don't even talk about cloven hoof which is, you know, something that would actually apply. Different tongues. Now, let's look at what tongues mean. The word in, in Greek is glossia, different variations of this, which simply means no inference. There is nowhere to go with this. The word glossia means languages. Everybody say languages. That's what it means. Or glossa, which is just a language, language. It means something that is utterable, that is understood. It is used to communicate within your tribe, within your dialect, within your ethnos, within your nation. There is never, let me be clear, never an idea of heavenly language expressed within the scripture. It's not there. Now, it has been inferred and it has been implied, but it is not within the scripture. How many have heard the term unknown tongues? Anybody ever heard of unknown tongues? This is often what is used to... The word unknown always is italicized because it never appears in the text. This is the facts of the matter. Now, we can have all of our feelings about what grandma did and grandpa did. And my heritage is Pentecostal. So we can look back and say, oh, man, that means everybody was. I don't want to talk about everybody being wrong. I don't care about what everybody did. I think there's a lot of good people who believe some things that aren't right. So I'm not judging people here. I'm just saying factually what the word of God says. And then we have to deal with that. Amen. So they spoke in languages. Now, here is the miracle of Pentecost. They spoke in languages, not languages that were unknown, but languages they had not learned. They didn't go in the upper room and take a crash course in foreign language. What's the big one right now that you listen to? Babel, there we go. Got Babel and they sat up there for seven days listening to Babel and they walked out of there proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. No, they did not learn the language they're up there seeking the Lord, saying, God, you have promised that you're going to empower us to be witnesses of you. You're going to make us able to testify of who you are, Jesus. And we know you're alive, but how are we going to tell the world? And they're working through all their issues. Can you imagine seven days in the upper room with the same group of people and actually getting into one mind and one accord? Frankly, the reason why we can get into one mind and one room is because we're not around each other seven days a week. But they're working through all of these issues. They're coming to a focus, which is that the Spirit of God is going to empower them to be able to share the gospel of who Jesus is. Upon his empowering, his Spirit 
breathes into them. And the mighty rushing wind is really just, the word means an exhale, just the same as Jesus stood over them and said, receive, breathe upon them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit or the breath of God. The same thing happens that God breathes into the upper room and the Spirit of God begins to fill them at which point 120 people pour out of the upper room into the streets of Jerusalem and begin to prophesy or proclaim who Jesus is in languages they did not learn, but they were languages that were present in Jerusalem. In fact, if you look at um, Acts chapter 2, in verse 7, which I, I want to cover these really quick. Pull these up just so we can look at them really quickly. Because these are, the, these are the mentions of the Spirit of God being present and people speaking in tongues. Now, there, I'm not going to cover the ones where they don't. Because there are three instances in the, new, in the book of Acts where the Spirit of God is present and they speak in tongues, languages. And then there are three where the Spirit of God begins to fill them and they do not. So certainly there's not a consensus that you need to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit of God. Absolutely not biblical. But let's look at these three for the sake of 1 Corinthians 14. Acts 2, 7, and, and just kind of skim through them really quick. Let's read them. Uh, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Go to the next verse. And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Now, I'm not going to read the rest. That down through 11, you can read it. But, it. but they are hearing. What are they hearing? Their languages. I don't know. I'm not there. But I'm pretty well certain that what is happening is they are professing language. Now, as it's coming out of their mouth, as if I was speaking Chinese right now, I would be like, I have no clue what I'm saying. But to them, it was not coming in a heavenly language that was somehow being interpreted in the hearts of these people. They heard with their ears the language that they were born with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the miracle. So, so then when we step back and look at this, what was the purpose of the tongues? It served as a sign. It absolutely did. I've been thinking, I've often said, I've said it a hundred times, and I'm going to back it up just a little bit. I've said that, that tongues is not evidence of the presence of the Spirit of God. But I have to back it up a little bit because it was evidence to the unbeliever who was hearing the gospel. They didn't hear tongues. You understand what I'm saying? They weren't hearing what we call today, and I don't mean disrespect, but the, the babbling or, or the unutterable, the guttural sound. They were not hearing that. They were hearing within their languages. And it, and it gives a list of some of the names of the countries that were there and the tribes. And, and I believe that everybody's represented. Now, what are the people who are there? They're proselyte Jews. They're Jews who are from other countries who have come to Pentecost to feast because it's required of them to be there. And God says, first I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Then this gospel's going to Judea. So it's going to the outskirts. Then it's going to Samaria, another little spin-off of the Jews. But then where is it going to? The Gentiles. That's me and you. We're all Gentiles. There's not one of us here who's Jewish Enough to call herself Jewish. I got my grandma was somewhat Jewish, I suppose, but um, not really any any one of us is Jewish. We're all Gentiles. So look at um, Acts chapter ten, verse 40, 44. I'm not trying to keep you real long today, but I just want to cover a couple of things. 
Verse 44, Acts 10, 44. The second occurrence. So tongues in Acts 2 was an evidence to the unbelievers that Jesus had risen. It was a testimony of his gospel. Everybody agree with that? We can make that statement. Okay. Then Acts 10, verse 44. And while Peter was yet speaking these words, the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit fell on all them which heard the word. Verse 45. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 46. For they heard them speak with languages and magnify God. What did they hear them with? Their ears. That's where you hear. I believe this is very clear. This also stood as a sign. Tongues stood as a sign in Acts 2 to the unbeliever. Now Peter and those of the circumcision do not happen to be believers that the gospel is going to the Gentiles. Everybody understand? They're unbelievers. They do not believe that this thing is going to be extended outside the walls of the Jewish system. And so when Cornelius and those who are with him, hypothetically, this is conjecture, but I'm just giving you something fresh, stand up and begin to magnify God. What are they? They're Italian. They do not speak Peter's language. But what was Peter's native tongue? Would have been Hebrew. And they begin to magnify God in Hebrew, a language they do not know. But those of the circumcision who also don't know Italian would have been able to say, this is the exact same thing that happened on the day of Pentecost. Everybody following what I'm saying? It was a witness to Peter and the the men he took with him of the circumcision that now the Spirit of God was being poured out in those who were not a part of the Jewish system because they prophesied and magnified God in their language. Peter and them heard them speaking the glory of God. I believe in Hebrew. Can't prove it. The next one I won't read, but it's in Acts 19.6. And Paul goes to the, some of the uh, disciples of John, and he says, have you received the Spirit of God since you believed? And they, and they said, I don't know what you're talking about. And, uh, and, and he says, well, you know, what were you baptized with? They said, the baptism of John. Well, John's baptism wasn't a baptism unto salvation. It was a baptism unto repentance. They're repenting, but they don't believe in the Messiah. They don't even understand who Jesus is fully because it was John's baptism, which was a partial baptism. Now, Paul begins to to speak to them. They believe. He prays with them, and it says the Spirit of God fills them. They begin to speak with languages, with tongues, and they begin to prophesy of the glory of God. And it is an evidence to Paul that the same Spirit is working in them. So this was evidence. There is some use of evidence. What does not happen to be true is that you speaking in a language that is unknown on this earth is any evidence of anything spiritual. Now, if you... Does anybody in here speak any other language besides English? Okay, it's going to be a flat example. If, if you, not knowing Spanish, and Uncle Skip is here, are able to get up 
by the Spirit of God, you, you have no training, and you begin to prophesy and preach in Spanish to the glory of Christ and speak as Dad did today about the light of this world, and you've never learned a, a word of, of uh, Spanish in your life, then I would have to step back and say, this is an evidence that the Spirit of Christ is within you. However, if you get up and speak in a language that nobody in this room knows, and there's no ability to verify anything that you are saying, I cannot then use that as evidence of anything of God in your life. Everybody following my train of thought at least? It's my train of thought. So while I do not pretend to all have all understanding, it is my primary belief now, and this has shifted certainly through the years, that the word tongue means earthly language and not heavenly language. It's my primary belief. Maybe you could try to convince me otherwise, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I cannot find any scriptural text which attaches it to a heavenly language. So therefore, I have to back up and say, okay, now listen, I'm not beating up tongues. I know I grew up in it, and I, and I think there's a lot of good people who believe maybe differently than me, so that's not my point. I'm trying to establish why we believe what we believe here for you. That's it. You all can do with it what you want. At this point, I would not support the idea that there is heavenly language because I'm struggling to see proof for it in the text. I understand the case could be made for a heavenly language. People could argue, and I do not intend to argue this point. And the reason I don't want to is all it's going to do is create frustration and separation. I, I have no desire to do that. We have enough division and schism within the church. Everybody say amen. It's enough. We need to find the simplicity of Christ, proclaim him, follow him, live for him, and stop worrying about all the side details. So I'm not trying to, to draw a line here and create separation. I'm trying to create some understanding. But I will say this. Regardless of what your view or my view of tongues is, we can conclude and agree we have to on a few things. One, any gift that does not bring direct and immediate glory to Christ is a distraction. Everybody can agree on that. At best, it may be evil, it may be a foul spirit. At best, it's a distraction. Second, the working of the Spirit of Christ is there to establish and to grow Christ in the body. So every gift, whether it is tongues, whether it is prophecy, whether it is a gift of healing, whether it's the working of miracles, any of those gifts that we could find, all of them are there for the establishment of Christ and his growth within our bodies, our individual body and the body of his church as a whole. And if it does not fulfill those two criteria, the immediate glorification of him and the establishment of him in us and in the church, then it's not of him. And only, at best, is a distraction. So now let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I want to skim through this. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. I'm going to group some verses together and just kind of tell you what I believe is kind of being said. You can go home and read it this week. 1 Corinthians 14. If we stay in the scripture, we're just going to stay in the scripture here, and we're going to see if we can understand some things about tongues. Verse 1. I'm going to read this one. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. Or the gifts is highlighted. Can anybody see that in your text? It's high, I don't know if it's on the board. Nope, it's not highlighted on the board. But it is highlighted, meaning it's not in there in the original. It's just pneumatikos probably. It's spiritual things. 
the idea being probably gifts, but desire spiritual things, but rather that you may prophesy. Again, what are we talking about? Not a magic trick foretelling. You come to me and I say, thus says the Lord, you're going to get an $800 check in the mail today. I'm not talking about that. That's parlor tricks. We know a pastor personally who is performing this regular. He's lying to the people and the people are sucking it up, having itching ears. They love to hear the lies. They love it. He's prophesying constantly things that are not true, and the church continues to stay the same size. I have no clue how that can happen. I'm just reading the other day in, in the book of Deuteronomy, and the Lord says, listen, if you say I said it and I didn't say it, you're a false prophet. So I don't, I don't understand how we can, I don't know. But not foretelling, but forthtelling. Desire that you can proclaim the glory of who Christ is. This is a better gift. This is what... The apostle is saying. Now, Paul talking to the church at Corinth. What is Corinth? Let's do a quick lesson. Corinth is a diverse seaport. It's on the, on the gulf there, and there's a lot of people coming in and out. There's a lot of traffic. There's a lot of commerce. There's a lot of languages. A lot of different groups are there. There's not just this, this one language that is predominant, but you've got people from all over the world coming into these ports, traveling on ships. And so now you've got a group of believers that is meeting at Corinth that is, by the way, the most immature of all of the churches Paul dealt with. And the only one that Paul talks to about spiritual gifts. That'll give you a clue. We're all caught up on spiritual gifts. It's probably because of our immaturity not our maturity. So this diverse seaport, varied culture, many languages, Gentile languages. Now, verses 2 through 5. I'm not going to read them, but in essence, I'm going to sum them up in this way. He says, listen, if you get up in church and speak in a language, now you're going to see tongues used frequently in this passage. I'm going to use the word that it, it is. It's language or languages. If you get up in church and speak in a language that people do not understand, you might be glorifying God, but nobody will know it. Again, if I got up in front of all of you, which none of you speak Chinese, and maybe I even know Chinese, which I believe this is what Paul is referring to, a language that you might know, but that nobody else does. If I got up here and, and read out of Mao Zedong's book, you would not know it. And I could be passing off as though I'm speaking some thing of the oracles of God. And nobody would be the wiser and it would bring no glory. But even if I got up here in Chinese and read out of the Chinese Bible and I begin to, to, to speak some Chinese about Christ, it would bring no glory to any of you even though I might be glorifying God. Because it would be a language that none of you could even possibly know. There is an interesting perspective, and it's just a perspective. But Dr. Lightfoot, who is a scholar, and I don't read him, but I, I happen to, to read um, some, some, uh, some of the scholarly works of, of a guy named Adam Clark, and he refers to him regularly. He believes, I'm just going to throw this out there, and you can take it or leave it. He believes that what is talking, being talked about here, languages, is that the early church there is probably talking about Hebrew. Because to the Corinthian church, they would not have known Hebrew. But just as we take our Greek text, I'm, I'm quoting Glossia, we take the Greek and we dig back through the Greek. It is 
conjecture, but highly likely that these men are also studying back into the Greek or to the Hebrew text to see the prophecies concerning Christ. And how amazing would it have been when they pulled out that this, this uh, thing that dad read today, how the, uh, by the way of the sea, the light's going to come and it's going to come from Nazareth. And they begin to dig in there and pull out these little nuggets. But if you get up and spoke in Hebrew in Corinth, there's not a person in that church that's going to know what you're talking about. And so he believed that that, and, and I've been thinking about that. I don't know that we could make a definite case for that, but it's, it's an interesting perspective anyway. So verses 6 through verse 18 can kind of be summed up in this way. He says, even when instruments have a discernible sound. Now, if Sister Gwen, I should have got her because she plays the trumpet, as far as I understand. You would know the difference between her playing the trumpet and me playing the trumpet. I guarantee, can you play taps, for example? Okay, she could play taps, and you all would know what that means. If I played taps, you would have no clue what it means. Paul uses this exact example. He says, every instrument has a sound, and when it is played appropriately, it means something to someone. But if you get up and blow the trumpet, now this speaking of what they would have done in the Jewish wars, remember that we see this all through the Old Testament, they would blow the trumpet, and the one time Gideon, I think they throw down the lamps at the same time. Um, we, they, they march around the walls of Jericho, and then they shout and they blow the trumpets. The trumpet had a specific sound, just like we know, reveille. Reveille in the morning means you better get up out of bed and you better get here, hurry. But if reveille is not played to the correct tune... Would anybody know what it means? If someone plays Reveille and instead they play Beetle Bailey, how would it be judged by the one who hears it? This is what Paul is saying. So exactly the same way, if someone gets up and begins to speak in a language that nobody knows, how is it possibly able to be discerned? Now, if he's talking about heavenly languages, this argument would fall flat. Can you understand? If he's saying somebody speaks in a heavenly language and there's somebody to interpret what that language means, then there's no need to make this example. But discernible sound. Language sounds the way it does. We formulate words, and every, every language has it. Different ways that we say things, the way we pronounce letters, it all comes together to make a discernible. You understand what I am saying today by the way the sound is formed. And so likewise, he makes this exact same example. So he says, otherwise it would just be noise. So pray that you might be able to articulate what you are hearing in your spirit Otherwise, it's going to be lost to anyone's understanding. That's verses 6 through 18. Now look at verse 21 through 25. Unknown tongues were never a sign. You can follow along there and be skimming so you know that I'm not lying to you. He says unknown tongues were never a sign to the believers of any infilling. He literally says it. He says, tongues were a sign to who? The unbelievers. So just think about this for a moment. We've got a bunch of believers in here. This is, this is my experience. And we get somebody down at an altar. 
and we pray with them, and somebody's telling them to turn loose, and somebody's telling them to hold on. Somebody's telling them to let go, and somebody's telling them to grab on. They're crying, and they're trying. And when they stand up and speak in a language that's heavenly, it is evidence to believers that they are filled with the Spirit of God. This is 100% opposite of what the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, languages were never a sign to the believer. It was always for the unbeliever. Remember Acts 2. Remember Acts 10. It's an evidence that the Spirit of God is working so that you can hear it in language. And then he goes on to say, listen. But if we speak in a bunch of languages that people don't know, and they walk in the back of the church. Follow along there. You're going to find it. He said that they're going to come in the back of the doors of the church to hear a bunch of people speaking in a bunch of languages they don't know, and they're going to say, this place is a madhouse. Peace out. That's what all of you would do. Frank came for the first time today. If Frank would have walked in here and every one of us was speaking a language he did not know, and I walk up and I say... Ni hao. And he's like, I don't know. He's looking for the next guy, right? And, and nobody can communicate with him. He's out. But if you can prophesy in a language he knows, and by the Spirit of God begin to reveal to him the very secrets that are within his heart, he will be converted. Totally different picture. Totally different thing that God's trying to accomplish here. So it's better to speak in a language that's known than a language that's unknown. 26 through 31. Listen, I cannot for the life of me figure out why Pentecostals get together and it is encouraged for everyone to speak in tongues. I literally cannot understand it. So I have a friend and I like him and, I, and I'm try, trying to keep a relationship with him. They're apostolic and I've been talking to him. And I ask him this question because I think it's a fair question. You go to any big event, camp meeting, it doesn't even have to be big. You go to any kind of Pentecostal rather than a regular service. Go to a camp meeting, go to a conference, any big seminar. And the Pentecostal service, somebody's going to get up there and say, now I want every one of you to pray in your heavenly language. As though you all have your own heavenly language, which is, I don't even know where we get that from. The problem is, the apostle says, listen, now I believe he's speaking very clearly about earthly languages anyway. But let's just suppose it means heavenly languages for a second. He said, listen, when you all get together, if somebody's going to speak in tongues, languages, heavenly or not, let it be Two or three. And only, here's the qualifier, only if there is someone there to interpret. Now this makes perfect sense, again, because of the examples he's given. If he's talking about Chinese, for example, we'd be no good for, in fact, we, we, we had a little experience with this. We tried to have Jaime Rivera preach for us. And the guy who was supposed to do the interpreting for him, he, Jaime barely spoke English. Very broken, hard to understand. And we had him, and Dad said, hey, you know, we said, hey, let's come preach. And he brought a guy, and the guy who was supposed to come, he, uh, he couldn't make it, so he brought another guy. 
and his English was better, but it was lost in communication. There, it was very difficult to follow. And this is, again, exactly what the apostle says. Is Listen, if you've got somebody who's going to speak in a language nobody knows, it better be only two or three, and there better be somebody there to interpret. Yet, we get together as Pentecostals and say, now everybody in the room, pray in your heavenly language. I ask my friend, why? Why? Why do we do this? Why is this okay? Why do we take the word of God and Paul's very specific description of what is permissible and what is not, and we completely ignore it? Completely. Well, it generates a lot of confusion. A lot of confusion. In fact, verse 31, Paul is speaking there. He says, God is not the author. Confusion from 31 to 36. And by the way, you can control your spirit. He said the spirit is subject to the prophet. So all these manifestations that people suppose they cannot control is very clearly rebutted by Paul. There is nothing that you cannot shut your mouth about. Stop being a distraction. Stop creating uh, you know, a, a scene that's drawing attention away from what really needs to be done, which is what? The exaltation, the glorification of Christ in you and in the body of Christ. Stop it. There's nothing going on here that requires you to make a scene of yourself. That's what he's saying. Now, all of you who have been in, how many of you have grown up in some Pentecostal services? Raise your hand. I want to see it. Then every one of you who's been in that have seen the scene. Every one of you. And we'll just say, well, you know, that person, they were, they were in the flesh. Yeah, the whole thing's in the flesh. That's the problem. There, there should never be this distraction away from the Lord. This first, <laughs> this passage, 31 to 36, becomes very difficult. We could cut it out of the Bible. I literally saw Robert Tilton. Anybody remember Robert Tilton, Bobby Tilton? I literally saw him ripping pages out of the Bible the other day. It was an old clip. Ripping them out and throwing on the floor. We don't believe this. We don't believe this. <laughs> So we rip out 1 Corinthians 14, just rip it out and throw it on the floor so we don't believe it? And now, <laughs> I have to address it. I'm going through 1 Corinthians 14. we got a chapter that's speaking about tongues. And in, in this chapter, not out of context, the apostle says, listen, your women need to be silent in church. Chauvinistic patriarchal, um, what, what else is it? Misogynistic, there we go. I didn't say it. Paul said it. Now, I have no problem. We love that the girls lead in worship, and that would be opening their mouths. I love that you, the women testify, and we have them teach, and classes and women's classes I think what is clearly being expressed by the apostle is that women are not to exercise authority in the church I'm sorry not my rules God's rules are women less absolutely not when it comes to feeding babies I fail and when it comes to working in negative 20 degrees pouring concrete all you women fail we're made differently. We have different 
function, different purpose. This is not about greater or lesser. This is about, this is about design and how God made it to be. But I find it interesting that in the middle of this chapter about tongues and the appropriateness of it and how it's all supposed to work and the confusion that he, that he stops right in the middle and say, by the way, your women need to be quiet in church. And if they got something to say, they need to ask you at home what it's about. Because I'm going to tell you something. A lot of this tongues mess that's going on in the church is held up by a lot of holiness women. It's propagated by a bunch of holiness women who have taken over the churches and they are running roughshod. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard a man of God get up to speak and a woman sitting on the pews get up and shut the service down and begin to tell the church what it needs to hear. Wrong. Wrong. All the women say amen. You just opened your mouth in church. So, Sister Beth preaches. We'll go hear Sister Beth preach. She's talking about Christ. I, I don't think that's really what it's talking about. And I think there are exceptions, too, where there isn't a man to pastor. Maybe in some African... <laughs> Dustin loves to talk, we talk about this. You know, the, the rule. And Well, there's this exception. Yeah, but we don't live in the exceptions. Some African tribe somewhere where there's zero men. They were all killed, and so now they can't have church. Because No, no, no. I don't think that's what we're talking about. But what we are understanding is that God is not the author of confusion. There needs to be headship. There needs to be leadership. We went to a church, and I won't say where. Some of you would know, but we went to a church, walked in the doors. It's led by a woman pastor, and they had, they had a lesbian get up on the stage singing. They had a bunch of pink-haired... I heard this thing the other day on a side note. It's not real spiritual, but they said in the animal kingdom, things that are, things that are bright and weird colors are poison. And all these lesbians are dyeing their hair pink and purple and fuchsia and well, maybe it relates. I don't know. But we go in and, and the, this thing is being run. Why? Because there was a lack of male leadership to stand up and say no. We, we have that duty as men. We need to stand up for what's right. Everybody say amen. So I, I, love, I love our ladies. We, we, this is not any, any slight there, but we just... We need then to understand. Let's sum up the chapter, verse 37 through 40. Paul says this in 37. How do you know if someone is spiritual? You want to know how he says it? When they believe what I have just said is the commandment of God. That's what verse 37 says. That the things that I write unto you, they are the commandments of the Lord. So if you call yourself spiritual and ignore 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says you're not spiritual. This is how you know you're in a good spiritual place, that you are listening to what the apostle said and you're trying to apply it. Now, do we do this perfectly? I don't know. Could we allow more gifts in this church? Maybe. Maybe we're erring on the side of caution because we grew up in the shadow of Bethel. Maybe that's true. I know that's true of me. I want nothing to do with anything that comes out of there. A lot of that junk bothers me. Maybe we could grow in some areas, but our effort is to try to do things decently and in order to the glory of Christ. This is what church should be about. What I see in Baptist churches, fundamental churches, it's all about grace. And what I see in Pentecostal churches, it's all about Holy Ghost. But it's not about Jesus. And it's all supposed to be about Jesus. So when we preach, it needs to be about Him. 
when we sing, it needs to be about him. When we prophesy, it needs to be about him. If you're going to get up and speak in a language, it needs to be about him. That's what this chapter is saying. How does this work out? Do, do we then refuse fellowship with Pentecostal churches? Absolutely not. There are a lot of really good people that love the Lord that would not necessarily see this the way that I have just said. It does not make them heathens. It, it, it makes them, maybe they need a little light shed on them. But all I need to do in my church, in my home, in this body, I need to make sure that what we are doing is bringing glory to the Lord. So if what we're doing Sunday afternoons, and it really isn't, isn't church, but if what we're doing becomes cooking competition and bragging rights, then it's going to become a schism within the body, and we need to stop doing it. And if, if what we're doing up here with worship becomes about, well, I play the guitar better or the piano, or I sing better, or why, then we need to stop doing it altogether. So this is, this is the function of what's going on. Now, I intentionally, I'm closing, but I intentionally left off verse 19, 20, and 21. Because, as happens, I'm reading this, and I saw something. I called Carrie in the office the other morning. I've already been looking at this, and I called Carrie in the office the other morning. I go, I cannot believe this. I've never seen this. So I'm going to share with you what I think it's saying. This is me. Verse 19, why don't, why don't you pull that one up there? Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. And I'm looking at this, and all of a sudden it hits me, why five? Anybody else? I told you, I get weird questions come in my mind. Why five? Why not three? Why not one? I mean, that would, that would be the, the truest mark here. One word with understanding than 10,000. That would be the biggest span. Why not three and why not eight? Why not 10? Why not 20? But when I look at the Greek, something different jumped out at me. He says, in church... I desire, I wish I had it in, in, in the Greek New Testament up there. I wish I could blow it up and let you see it. I desire to speak pente logus. Five words. Pente logus. Now we know logos used all over the New Testament. John 1, Dad is reading today. It is not written or spoken word. Logos is where we get our word logic from. It is the thought, the reason behind the word. So the idea in the Old Testament where when David would say, God, teach me your precepts. I don't want to just know the rules. I want to understand why you put the rule in place so that I don't walk away from what you intended. I don't want to just keep the rules I want to do what you actually intended. So when we hear the word logos, it does not mean written or spoken word. John 1, and the logos became flesh. The logic, the reason, the thought of God became flesh and dwelled among us. That word is used twice in this. Words and unknown tongue. Or no, a thousand words. And then the glossy at the end. 
Twice it's logos. And what he says is, I would rather speak pente logu than myriads of logus. So all of a sudden, it just kind of jumps out at me in a different way. Pente. What have we been talking about in Acts 2? Pentecost. It's the same root. Is it possible that he is saying, I would rather have the logos of Pentecost than the language of Pentecost? Is it possible that what the apostle is saying is it would be a lot better to understand what was going on at Pentecost than to be able to speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not the agape that was happening there? He just talked about that. Pente logu. This is what I want. I want to be able with my intellect to be able to tell somebody in a language that they can hear who Jesus is than the ability to speak 10,000 languages. That's literally what he is saying. Yeah, that means something totally different to me. It makes me think about the giftings and the callings of God. And what is the purpose? I already know what the purpose is, but then it drives it back home for me. It is more important that I understand the function of what the Spirit of Christ is there to do in me than that I perform any of these uh, peripheral gifts, signs, miracles, and wonders. If I don't have the logos of it, if I don't have the heart of it, the logic of it, and what we have seen so much in Pentecost is we have ignored logic. We have refused reason. We don't want anything that looks normal. I, I've heard it said so many times in my life, and I guarantee you, you've been around church long enough, you heard it too. I would rather have wildfire than no fire at all. Anybody ever heard that one? Well, I'm the opposite. I don't want my house burning down. You know why you say that? Because you've never lived in Northern California. That's why you say that. When every summer you're worried about your house burning down, you say, I'd rather have no fire than wildfire. And when we've watched the church, the charismatic world, burning down around us, consuming all kinds of people into the signs and wonders and gifts, and none of them know Jesus. They're not growing in Him. They never even come to the knowledge of who He is. And we're cheering on the manifestations and the weirdness and, and everything that is, that is a super spiritual. And we are left with churches that are dying because people do not ever come into the light. And I've got to say that it would be much better, much better, for us to have the Logos of Pentecost than the language. So then he goes on to say, verse 20, I would rather that you be children in your understanding, infants in evil, and men in Christ, in your growth. Now that's not actually... What the words are. The word child here means somebody who is at learning age. So he said, I, I know I'm telling you some stuff that, that you think you've got it all figured out, but I would rather you be at that kindergarten age where you're just starting to learn your ABCs and you can grow in what I'm trying to tell you. When it comes to, to evil, you need to be infants. And this word means like little Rodney. 
He doesn't even have the propensity, the ability to do evil. He knows no evil. When it comes to doing wrong, I, I want you to be thinking like him. When it comes to, to the things of the church, I want you to be at that learning age. And ultimately, he does not say, I want you to become men. He says, I want you to become teleon. I want you to become complete. I want you to become mature. It's where we get our word telescope from. Many words in the Greek are transliterated and come over into English. So there's this process. Where do we fall into this thing? Well, as children, we're tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. But if we're children who are learning, then we can read this 14th chapter and say, okay, what, what is this about? What is this about? What is the church about? Coming in because we have a like mind, because we all agree on something and we do stuff a certain way. We sing specific songs and we don't speak in tongues and other churches do. And so we group together because we like that. And is that what it's about? Well, we've got better doctrine than everybody else. We have this good understanding of the glorification. Our Christology is better. And so, yeah, I like the Christology it echoes, so we'll, we'll go there. Is that what it's about? It's really not, I know, I know we say it and it, it seems, seems so, seems so generic. But it really is about the magnification of who Jesus is. And in that magnification, then we are shaped in his image. The light is shown and we grow and the church becomes the people that God intends us to be. And that's what it's about. Everything that was happening in 1 Corinthians 14 was happening as a distraction to the work of that. Which is why Paul spends chapters talking to this church about things that he never addresses in Ephesus. That he never talks about in, Corinth, or in, in, a, in, a, in Galatia. He doesn't even deal with it with them. Why? Because they've matured to the point that they don't have to deal with this stuff over and over and over again. So if we want maturity, here's how we'll know that we've come to a place of maturity. Is that we continue to refocus, step back, refocus, step back, refocus, and make sure that everything we are doing is about Him. And nothing is about us, our doctrine, our, our self, Echoes of Calvary, our little friend group, none of it. It's all about Him. Amen? Amen. Pastor, I want to close